Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to the Working Vacation Podcast. I go by the name of Marvin Light. I go by Hassan Shazam. It's your boy, Mo. And we want to give a quick shout out to our amazing sponsor, Red Owl Boxing. Red Owl Boxing is a fully equipped, state-of-the-art boxing academy located right here in the heart of Toronto. It's an incredible boxing facility with boxing classes for all ages. If you're looking to get fit, stay healthy, or build some awesome self-defense skills, Red Owl Boxing is the place to be. They are led by the best boxing and fitness instructors in Canada, located in the heart of Scarborough, with classes that range from beginner level to advanced. Red Owl Boxing offers something for everyone. Formulated with the perfect combination of boxing, strength, and cardio conditioning intervals designed to make you look good, feel good, and leave with more than just a great sweat. Check them out today on Instagram at Red Owl Boxing to discover your inner champion. Let's get ready to rumble! Obviously, we live in Toronto, and Toronto has had the longest lockdowns in North America. And mm-hmm. obviously, Doug Ford is the Ontario premier, and he's obviously responsible for a lot of this. Mm-hmm. We got to get this timid Doug Ford out of the office, fam, because I really think this dude is really trying to avenge his brother, Rob Ford, because he remembers how dirty this city did his brother. You know what I'm saying? So Doug Ford, he's the premier of Ontario, and he's, he's completely logged off Toronto for over a year of straight shutdowns. And his brother, Rob Ford, actually, I think he passed away like five years ago. He, he basically got exposed while being the mayor of Toronto for him basically taking, like, smoking crack. He remembers how dirty the media did his family, fam. That's why he's, he's trying to make us feel it. If it was going to be like shut down everything, it really should have been shut down everything from the very beginning for, like, a certain amount of time. And then make sure everything is dealt with or taken care of. And then you loosen restrictions and assimilate people back in properly. Vaccines or, or certain procedures should have already been available. There's a lot of holdup on a lot of different procedures throughout the country, right? He wants to lock everything down, but keep big business open and put more pressure on uh, small businesses, right? They're obviously not going to be happy about that. When across the street, they're seeing huge lineups in front of big corp businesses where they're not distancing. And for any small infraction, you know, they themselves get in trouble. So that obviously doesn't help, right? And Uh for regular everyday people, if you tell them, all right, everything is locked down, but then they find out, oh, like this, this mall is open and this place is open. And what do you think they're going to do? They're going to congregate to places that they feel, okay, like I'm, I'm going to congregate. Because after a certain point, people are going to get exhausted with the lockdowns without like very specific outline. Like this is what you can do. This is what you can't do. Like he'll give a certain set of instructions during his announcements and mm-hmm. it'll show up all over Twitter. But in real life, it's not being applied. Recently, he was trying to give uh, police special authority. Hassan, I think you have the article there. This happened on Friday, Friday, April 16th. So in a move that has been called a Black Friday of right slashing by civil liberty groups, the Ontario government has given police the power to randomly stop vehicles to ask about an individual reasons for uh, leaving their home. Police, along with bylaw officers, will also be able to require an individual to provide a home address and purpose for not being at their residences for the duration of the stay at home order, which Mm -hmm. is now expected to last until May 20th. Mm-hmm. So that was the gist of it on Friday. And then yesterday they were like, oh, because they obviously they heard five the hours backlash. after they basically they, yeah, they heard back. the backlash and they're like, oh, we didn't mean just for it. We'll stop people for anything. But only if, if police officers suspect that you are a part of some sort of large gathering or you're not going where you say you're going. Well, you know how that works. Like the people yeah. that are going to face the most issues regarding that are 
minorities, black and brown people, for the most part, that's who's going to be adversely affected by this, not not anybody oh, else. No, 100%. It didn't work because people were starting to actually stand up for themselves, bro. Because for the longest time, the government has been doing the A-town stomp on people's civil liberties. And just imagine what would happen if all businesses took that same stance, right? We would actually already be back to normal, right? That I disagree with. And we're going to get into that. We're going to get into that. Continue. That I because I think, I personally think Canadians are just way too compliant. Um, and that's what scares me the most. The only reason the government pulled back these special authorities for the police, because, yo, fam, if people didn't say nothing, the special authorities he was giving the police, bro, is comparable to Tavis. And for people who don't know what Tavis was, it was like Toronto Special Police Unit. Hood Police. Who could base, hood Police Unit, who could basically do whatever they want, bro. My personal opinion, bro, is like, once you start trying to infringe upon my civil rights, that's when I have a problem. Texas is more of a, uh, if I was the premier, bro, I think it's honestly one of a model that I would go with, where for those who don't know, Texas actually had a model where they said, okay, listen, businesses can stay open. We're not telling you guys not to wear a mask or whatever, but in terms of wearing masks and in terms of how many people can be in the, in the business, et cetera, that's up to you guys. It's basically putting the power back into the people, basically saying, yo, your health and your safety is your responsibility. If there's a case that outbreaks there, then what happens? Because everything's open, right? Aren't they supposed to lock down at that point? What because, I would assume if there's a case, that business open. will lock down. But remember, everything's open and you can't force people to close down anymore. So what if they decide that COVID isn't real? They don't want to deal with that. He didn't say you can't force people to close down. He said, I'm assuming if there's an actual case in that business, then the government should be able to step in and lock it down. So here, here's the thing. First and foremost, if we're going to talk about, before we get to Texas, if we're going to talk about uh, Doug, a lot of this is him playing catch up because when he was advised to not you know, loosen things up too crazy and let everything go. And, oh, it's about to be Thanksgiving. People are about to all congregate and do this and that and the third. Say, nah, keep businesses open, keep this open, keep that open. Predictably, what do people do? They all link up. They all celebrate the holidays, do what they're supposed to do. They haven't seen some of their family in a long time because of how crazy the restrictions were. When the restrictions were in place, there wasn't enough work done to let people back into, mm -hmm. streamline them back into society properly. Bro, how are we doing Italy numbers and we know what's up? Remember how bad Italy was doing last year? And mm -hmm. they, we didn't know anything about this thing at the time. We didn't know anything about COVID at the time. We just knew Europe was doing bad. How are we doing Italy numbers and we're supposed to know what's up? That's I'm a failure gonna... of administration, bro. I'm but hold on. I, I agree with that, but I'm a believer that COVID is very real. I know people who actually got COVID, so that is, that is not up for debate. Obviously, a lot of the stuff that's happening in the world and especially with all these lockdowns that we're experiencing in toronto i kept thinking what is the agenda what is the agenda what is the agenda right and i wanted to get you guys opinion i have two particular opinions i want you guys to chime in so here's the first one i think the government is looking to pacify the population and is using covid19 as the vehicle to enforce this agenda what if the government had a particular quota of a certain amount of businesses they wanted to see closed before they finally decided to reopen again? What if that was the reason they continue to keep instilling these lockdowns and these crippling restrictions for small and medium businesses? Because they know that they are fatal, like in regards to the survival of these businesses, right? Without your business running, you're going to be forced to take CERB and these government checks just to stay afloat. If the government is now paying you and giving you an, an allowance, bro, they literally become your daddy, G. I'm just remembering that Dave Dash interview from Breakfast Club, but go ahead. Yeah, bro. My they... son makes cookies. <laughs> no, no, the government becomes your daddy, bro. So no, take this in. For example, right? They say, okay, Mohammed, yo, you, you don't want to take the vaccine? Okay, we're going to cut off your funding. 
Oh, oh, you want to fight for your right to travel without a COVID passport? Okay, we're going to cut off your funding. I believe that we're entering an era where universal basic income is the standard. Think about it. What will society look like when half of the population depends on the government, Mohammed and Hassan, just to survive? Since most people have lost their jobs and are now depending on these government checks instead of getting up to work every day. And this is having deleterious effects on the population by pacifying them and stealing away their ambition to strive for self-liberty. I think this. Look, you think that the restrictions are nonsensical. I think they were applied incorrectly. I think he wanted to have the best of both worlds. He wanted to keep big business open, so not have a true lockdown, but then have everybody stay in their homes because we didn't have much information out in the beginning. But the more information that we ended up finding out about COVID-19, I felt like there could have been better ways to implement these lockdowns and better ways to foresee how human populations are going to move once they've been under lockdown for a very long time. They're going to come out. What are they going to go do? What are the places that they're going to go frequent? He probably wanted to keep businesses open for as long as he possibly could. I think he's learned by now he can't have a one leg in this policy and the other leg in the other policy. He's going to have to be one or the other. But because this wasn't implemented properly in the beginning, he's paying the price now. And people do not want to be compliant because of how long they've been under lockdown, how he misappropriated or misused his powers. So when he sees signs of, or indications that people are not going to follow this lockdown or whatever, he's going to go, okay, let me go more extreme. Let me, let me go the police route. And that's going to alienate people against you even more. But Hassan, do you think the idea that the agenda by all these lockdowns is not just COVID motivated, bro? Do you think that they're trying to basically get people so dependent on the state that they're going to eventually be able to introduce universal basic income? I don't know if the government necessarily is going to go that route. I wouldn't say that. I probably would say because a lot of small businesses most likely will not be able to handle more consecutive lockdowns. What's going to happen, and I think this is something that Mohammed mentioned a while back, these bigger companies are pretty much going to absorb the space that all these other small businesses existed in. So if you want to get all your basic necessities and stuff, you'll have to go to Walmart for it. You'll have to go to Amazon for all these other necessities Fast. and all these other stuff. I feel like other big corporations will take the spaces of these small businesses who couldn't handle the restrictions that the lockdown put them under and pretty much consolidate where you go to certain services for. That's what I think is more realistic. Mohammed, what do you think about the idea of the government using COVID as a vehicle to introduce universal basic income? I don't know if that's the goal. I don't agree that that's the goal they want to Yeah, Because that's socialism. What you're basically saying is yes. they want to create like a communist state. And realistically, North America as a whole, so the US and Canada. Yeah. Ideologically, have, that's yeah. the opposite. Yeah, it's ideologically the opposite. We have some like socialist elements already, like our healthcare system to some degree. Obviously, uh, a lot of the government assistance assistance programs that we have, I don't think they want to make people economically reliant that much on the government because that puts stress on the on the government as a whole. They want more businesses. They want people to start their own companies and uh, infuse our country with an economic boost. So I don't necessarily think that's the goal that they created COVID to shut down all these businesses so that. They can make uh, people more dependent on the government. I don't think that's not good for the government either. So I don't see that as being the end goal. Uh, I just think mm -hmm. we're dealing with like this random disease that came out of nowhere. We don't know the effects of it. And they're trying to do their best to get rid of it. Because as we can see, we didn't handle it initially that well. In New Zealand, it's, dude, New Zealand's fully open. I just think we didn't handle it well when it initially happened. Agreed. So now he's trying to, now he's trying to like reverse engineer everything where they're putting stricter mandates and 
to be quite honest, we have to blame the citizens in the city because it's not up to him at the end of the day. He's not he doesn't make the personal decision for you on whether or not you still want to go out and you still don't want to follow like the basics six feet. Like when, when it started out, it wasn't this it wasn't this oppressive. It was simply stay six feet away from people, wear your masks. We're going to do a lockdown for a couple of weeks. Let's relax. Mm-hmm. People were still going out, having parties. And then eventually when they opened up, they went nuts. So that's our problem. Our problem is a societal issue. As far as how it's affecting these businesses, as unfortunate as it is, like I work in the I work in the consumer financing space. So I, I talk to a lot of these businesses and the ones that are successful are the ones that have online businesses. So you got to you got to you got to adjust and you got to change with the times. And then for most restaurants, they're still open. They can still cater. They can't dine in, but people can still come in and, and, and grab takeout. Bro, to be honest, since COVID started, small businesses have been having the best safety practices by far compared to big box businesses. So it's laughable that all these small businesses are forced to get into the online space when it's like you see all these big box businesses that are packed with people and the government is closing your small business under the, what do they call it? Under guys, the, guys. the guise of being non-essential and these big box businesses being called essential. That's such an arbitrary definition that could be moved however way you want to move it. And this directly goes into my second theory. And I really want to get you guys' opinion. Like what if COVID was an opportunity that big businesses looked at and they said, you know what, let's capitalize on this. So for example, right, COVID, obviously now the entire government has to completely shut down everything. If they're going to put a halt on everything, now they have to start dishing out the stimulus package to the citizens. However, if you guys have been taking it, you guys go grocery shopping every day. How come there has not been inflation? If the government is like basically printing out this money, bro, billions and billions of dollars and just dishing it out, the natural transition, Mohammed, you're in, you've done economics, would be inflation. What if COVID was an opportunity for these big businesses where they just basically said, yo, we're going to pay the government, we're going to pay the stimulus tab, just keep these businesses closed under the fact that they're non-essential and keep us under the arbitrary fact that we're essential. What do you guys think about that? Sam, that sounds like a conspiracy, though. There's no way for us to like prove or authenticate that. Like, what's your source on that? I don't have a source on I that would, whatsoever, but I, I think... how much what money if, that is for them to like try to pay tell the government like in the back end we're gonna agree to pay people's tabs and then also dude the essential businesses not every single small business is shut down dude electronic stores stores that sell like gym equipment a lot of them are still open furniture stores most you know businesses what I mean? have shut down though no no i'm being i'm telling you right now from experience dude i, I talk to these companies furniture shops are still open you can't go inside the store and, and, and shop but you can pick up from like doorfront so they've allowed other ways for people to make purchases. Yeah. You can you can come in one at a time, see the product, and then pick it up. When you go down that whole fam, that rabbit hole of like these sort of conspiracies, like unless you substantiate it with some sort of evidence, you can go really deep and you can go to places where it's not real. I think it's easier for us to create all these myths around COVID than just admit like it's some odd disease that does exist that we need to find a cure or a re like if there is a reason for it, if there's a sinister reason, I don't think it's what you're suggesting. That's all I mean. I think they're just they're seeing what the economic landscape is and that doesn't necessarily have to be a, a, a conspiracy. They're just taking note of what it is. And it's like, okay, most likely some of these businesses are not going to survive. Let's figure out a way to diversify ourselves in the meantime. And then when everything is open, we can take the space or occupy the spaces that these other businesses used to. And we can just incorporate that afterwards and then just become these big department stores. 
that everybody just goes to. I don't think that that, that aspect is a conspiracy theory. I think it's them looking forward, looking to the that's future. Strategy, yeah. no, that's but that's strategy. profit. No, but my, but my, my, I, I, I want to briefly say that. You're, you're going to so chime in. No, no, okay. I just want to respond to your, your point, fam. I'll let you go. I just want to respond to your point. I'm agreeing with Hassan. Like, I don't think it's this big conspiracy where they're getting together saying, we're going to work in cohesion with the government to go after these smaller size businesses because they're not competing with these small size businesses. Amazon's competing with Walmart. They're not competing with Joe's mom and pop shop. Amazon and a lot of these other big conglomerates, and I'm telling you from experience, they have large supply chains that are fully integrated and an online space where you can shop and purchase things online. So they don't need people to be in their physical stores all the time. They've been moving away from physical store locations for a very long time. I've also worked in the real estate industry, specifically in, in the commercial space. A lot of these businesses and shops and malls have been trying to find creative ways to get people to go into the malls because online shopping has been slowly eating away at their business market or their margins. That's why I'm saying to you guys, like the goal for these companies has always been to go online. It just so happens that they're big conglomerates that have the infrastructure already built in to be successful. I'm asking you guys thoroughly, how come inflation has not happened yet? Because you guys are making it seem like this is a wild theory. Mohammed, you're in economics. I'm asking you, why hasn't there been inflation? Why isn't the price of stuff going up? Because, dude, there's still businesses open, Mahad. That's what I'm trying to explain to you. They're not shutting down everything. It's yeah, not everything as has to be completely like closed down. Nothing is operating. Yeah, in order for that to happen, that's the only way that like, feasibly that it looks like that, that could take the place. Last, but the even if businesses stayed no, open, if you're printing... The last time we had something like this, in order for there to be high levels of inflation, there has to be heavy levels of loss at the government level, right? So that's how it happens. Things get inflated because the banks and these systems are, are losing out on money. And that's what happened because there's a lot of homes, billions of dollars that were given to people in loans that they weren't able to pay back. That's why you had these banks shutting down or some of them closing and looking for looking for funding from the government, basically. That's not the case right now. These banks are not going under. Businesses are still open. You can still shop online. The small mom and pop shops who unfortunately don't meet the necessity requirements in order to be an essential business, they're the ones that are being affected, but those don't make up the large sum of our economy for the most part as far as uh, how they're contributing. And plus, it's been in and out, right? Like They're open sometimes throughout the year and then it closes. So it's not like a consistent thing where we've had like a year-long run where these companies have just completely been closed and then they've just fully gone under. So I think that's kind of the answer to your question why it hasn't turned into full inflation. I would disagree with that because if you're introducing hundreds of billions of dollars, bro, to the economy just by the government pumping out that money, there is a loss. It's not even close to the money that they gave out when they had the bailouts for the banks. That's what I'm yeah, trying to explain to you. It doesn't, it doesn't measure up yet. We have to be in this for a couple more years. I personally think the times that we live in lends itself to, to this type of thinking. You're going to start reaching for whatever idea that you can think of whatever makes the most sense because what yeah. we are what we are experiencing is very strange the total value of the actual stimulus in 2020 from canada was um it was approximately 82 billion so i was incorrect it wasn't hundreds of billions of dollars that's probably more in the fucking states when they're bailing out the banks man it was like trillions and trillions of dollars do you get what i'm saying like the government has the payroll to pay everyone a thousand bucks for a couple of months. They have the means to do that. You know what I mean? And we all pay taxes at the end of the day. So they're going to get their money back one way or another. Mm -hmm. um, but just to move on to the next discussion, Hassan spoke about this during our pre-recording call uh, when we were talking about what topics we wanted to kind of touch on. And I thought uh, this was a really a poignant point. Uh, we all know DMX, uh, rest in peace, uh, recently passed away about a week ago. And what we wanted to talk about was 
he mentioned in an interview, I'm not sure if it was like a year before he passed away or, or more recently before he passed away, that when he was younger, the thing that really got him into his addictions and his addictions to drugs, cocaine, crack, things of that nature was he had an OG in his neighborhood, an older guy who gave him a blunt to smoke, but laced the blunt with cocaine. And what DMX was saying was that experience at that age is what kind of got him hooked and turned him into the addict that he became later on in his life. And, I, and obviously, as we can see, that these addictions were, the, were one of the main reasons why he passed away. He was fighting these demons for a majority of his life, and he was still very young. Like, 51 years old is a young is a young age to pass away as a man. You and for, I mean? for people that don't not, realize, an OG is a person that you, you trust. It's a respected person in the hood. And you kind of look at them like an older brother and stuff like that. Sometimes exactly. even like father figures, there's a lot of regard for the OGs in the hood, you know? And the fact exactly. that his OG did that is, is, is super fucked up. Stuff like like if what we wanted to talk about is just have a discussion on that and like the mental health effects, the long-term effects, how coercion in our communities from these older gentlemen can lead these young men on, onto like a very negative path that can affect them in so many different ways in the future. So I wanted to kick it off to Hassan first because I know he brought up the topic and I just wanted to kind of let him elaborate. I believe that there was a post that Swiss Beats made around the time that he um, it was announced that he passed away. And it was more on the sense of, you know, I'm, I'm glad my, uh, my brother is not feeling pain anymore or that he no longer has to feel this pain. And and usually when people make, you know, RIP posts or just say their condolences, generally he's like, oh, you know, gone too soon or so on and so forth. But the way he phrased it kind of took me aback because it was like for him to to say that he was better off, you know, resting peacefully than than living with this for as long as he did. That really puts into perspective for at least the people that was close to him. I think that says a lot. And in that interview that you guys mentioned, where he was telling Talib Kweli about his experience, where his OG put him on, one of the things he was he was saying was like, he just couldn't rationalize at that time, like why you would do that to me. Like, I loved you. I really looked up to you. I really, I really saw you as a person that was like a guide for me. And he's I had my best interest yeah, at heart. I had my best interest at heart. I he held your like, high esteem, basically. Like yeah, someone you really yeah, respected. Yeah, like, and he sounded hurt. This is a 50-year-old man at the time of, of that interview. Still emotionally messed mm. up over, over that Dealing experience. with that trauma, man. Let's yeah. talk about it. You know what I mean? And, and for that to last that long puts into perspective that, you know, the situations that a lot of people find themselves in when they look up to these, you know, unworthy OGs or these individuals who should know better, who are older who have had experiences and know that, you know, certain types of lifestyles will bring around a very negative outcome, prison, death, no longer being around family, no longer seeing your friends anymore, Mm -hmm. feeling isolated, depression. And you would knowingly still put a kid who you maybe you see that have certain talents. You don't encourage those talents. You encourage them to make the exact same mistakes that you did when you know the outcome. So I feel like that put that into perspective for me when I saw that and it just had me thinking, which is why I brought the topic up. No, it's, it's a real topic. We all grew up in the hood here, every single man in this podcast. For me, I really think it's just truly sad because people who are, who are deemed addicts or just have certain addictive behaviors, they rarely have the resources they need to actually deal with this shit, bro. Because addiction is so difficult to beat. And it has such deleterious effects, not just on you, but on the people you love as well. Because a lot of these people who are addicts, bro, they're so addicted to whatever substance it is. And if let's say that substance needs some form of funding to be able to do it, they try to get it by any means. Obviously, you guys know, like my my degree was psychology. And, and honestly, my favorite classes was drugs and behavior and uh, neuroscience. And one thing I really wanted to get into was the neuroscience of actual 
addiction. There's two types of drugs, right? Either it's an excitatory or it's a depressant. Crack is an excitatory drug. So what happens is when you keep taking this drug, that particular neurotransmitter that's firing off, well, let's say it's serotonin, right, or whatever it is, your body's just like, whoa, bro, this, it, there's such a massive influx of this neurotransmitter, let's say serotonin or dopamine, that's entering my body, and it's happening on such a consistent basis, your body's like, yo, whoa, 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 like, this is not normal. So what your body, your brain starts doing, it starts shutting down neurotransmitter receptors that actually receive these neurotransmitters. When you're not taking that particular substance, be it in this case crack, your body, because it has shut down those neurotransmitters, you're actually in a much more lower state. Your body does this to kind of keep you safe. When he's not taking crack or he's not taking whatever particular substance that is crack in this case, you feel terrible. Your body just feels depressed to the point where you feel like you have to take this substance, even just a little bit of this substance, just to feel normal again, bro. Can you imagine that? There's not enough resources for the hood to have like mental health professionals actually look at people with these particular mental illnesses it's a heart attack for sure that we know and yeah. the the mindset is that because of his rampant drug use like mahad said it, uh, mahad obviously it's, it's going to have a long-term effect on you it might not kill you yeah at 21 but if you keep doing this stuff out for a prolonged period of time even if you get off of it yeah it can have a it can have negative effects on your health right i think yeah. even eddie guerrero i think he died the same way he had a he overdosed had a heart attack and passed away obviously his was immediate but when you keep using these drugs for such a long period of time, and this is what I tell people, and that's why I think what the, his OG did was so sinister, he put him on a track that was only going to lead him to death. Like, DMX literally stopped. If you guys saw him recently, he put on weight. He stopped smoking crack. He wasn't smoking crack at that time. I honestly don't even think he, he OD'd. I, I genuinely think it was a heart attack. It was just all... From, from years of... Year, yeah, yeah. Just leading up to Catching it. up with him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even if you're on a long-term track uh, with these drugs and say you go through rehab, you're able to be in a situation where you're a little bit calmer and you're away from it. If you ever do relapse and you try to go to your original dose that you used to take, but you've been off it for so long, that stuff could potentially kill you because your body's not ready for it. Because your tolerance dropped. Yeah, it dropped. There's something called um, environmental tolerance. And what happens is, let's say you take a particular drug in the same particular location always. What happens is your body starts to associate that environment with that drug. So what it does is if you're taking an excitatory drug, before you enter that environment, your body puts you in a more suppressed state, right? Exactly. It and is it a craving, a craving, right? right? Yeah, so now okay, gotcha. in that particular environment, your tolerance is actually increased because, as I said, your body has associated that drug with that environment. A lot of times what happens is people who are addicts, they actually overdose because let's say they've been taking crack always consistently in their room for like years. That particular tolerance is associated with their room. Their body's prepared for that. But let's say now they take that same amount in some place else that's foreign to their body and their mind, they overdose because their body just wasn't prepared for that. That's called environmental tolerance. A lot of these celebrities and a lot of these musicians and people with with a lot more resources can find themselves in a really dark place because they have the resources to buy this stuff in like a lot of quantities. So guys, let's move the conversation forward. So Mahad made a really good point where he mentioned that we have a lack of mental health resources in our communities. Mm-hmm. Obviously, DMX, I'm not sure. I think he was born in the 70s, so he would have been a teenager in the 80s, right? Yeah, Yonkers, New York. Yeah. Yeah. So at that time, we know for a fact, like in the hood nowadays, we don't have those resources. So I'm certain they didn't have anything back then for Definitely. to get any help. And you know how it is when you, when you live in our communities, particularly if you have a black family, African, whatever it is, if you have that type of parentage, 
they're not going to step in and, and try to help you out and you're not going to feel comfortable to share that information. Yeah. So I doubt DMX was going to family members or friends and letting them know like, hey, I'm dealing with this addiction. He probably didn't even understand what was going on. He didn't even know it was an addiction. He just thought it was something that he would do occasionally or whatever the case was. But we see it all the time. A lot of these artists are functioning addicts. And it's worse nowadays because the drugs, they have more immediate effects and they're ODing on these things a lot more. So that's why I say, you know, alhamdulillah, thank God DMX even made it to 51. Me and Hassan were talking about that. I'm like, yo, the fact yeah. that he got at 50, I was just like, he's lucky because a lot of people, you know what I mean, that are black, that grew up in those situations, they don't make it that far, bro. Dude, look at Amy Winehouse, man. She died at 27. Kurt Cobain shot himself. But you see what I'm saying? Like a lot of these people. Jimi Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix, 27. Facts. They die before they even hit 30. You know what I mean? And for these new young rappers, a lot of them don't even hit 25. They don't. Yeah. yeah. uh, Juice Juice World. World. Yeah. Yeah. So the point that I'm making is, is like, it's deeper than we think it is. We really need resources. And, and it's a cultural thing because we come from cultures and backgrounds where our parents and our communities don't take mental health very seriously. They don't take addiction very seriously. They just think it's like, hey, stop taking this. It's a shade dog, you know what bro. I mean? Well, I, with us, it's a, they say it's the devil, dog. That's the it's the devil, exactly. <laughs> you know what right? Yeah. Or, or, or Mahad, Mahad, it's as simple as this. Why don't you just stop taking it? What's wrong with you? You know what I mean? It's people yeah. really think it's that simple. It's like, nah, man. Yeah, this person it's too deep. Uh, addiction is a very hard component. thing to be, bro. For people who successfully even managed to make it to the other side, the rewiring that that does to your brain. I remember Eminem was talking about when he like overdosed in 07 and he woke up mm-hmm. and they're like, yo, you you almost died. Like you just woke up. So after that, I think he's been like more now, more than like 10 plus years sober. But he was like, he didn't know how to function again off of drugs. Like he couldn't, oh, do, he couldn't do certain basic things. He had to relearn how to like record and rap. Like he didn't know how to do basic things again. Like he had to like rewire his brain to figure out how to do certain things. Cause it was so, he was so used to having that element there the entire time. Yeah, because you need it to feel normal, bro. An addict doesn't behave the same way a normal human being does, bro. Because whatever it is to get that their hands on that particular drug, they're going to do it by any means. Or if they don't, they just feel physically terrible. Because there's always a shift. In the beginning, maybe you're doing it socially. Maybe you're doing it to be around uh, certain things. Or like maybe you liked the feeling that you got off of it. But pretty quickly, depending on how fast you do it, now you have to take this like you're you're so hooked that you absolutely do need it to feel that point because you feel trapped now a lot of times when people take these particular drugs it's one they associate to the environment two they also associate it to the experience so now if i had the most amazing time of my life on molly guess what just to feel not just that same high but just to feel that feeling again of that experience, okay, now I got to take Molly. They're not just chasing the high, they're chasing the experience. I really do think mental health should be free. The same way we have OHIP in Canada, mental health should be free, bro. Like knowing everything that we know now and the way his life turned out and the OG that first put him on that, it's a really messed up thing to do. Like I, I keep going back to that because it's just like you knew, you knew potentially setting this kid up for, for the type of life that you were setting him up for by giving him that. Like were you so desensitized that it didn't matter to you? The, the issue that we have in our community, the people that are deemed OGs or supposed to be leaders are typically not that much older than the people they're leading. You got 20 year olds leading 14 and 13 year olds to the to their grave, to prison, to God knows what else. Right. Even the older guys, guys that are in their 20s, maybe even in their 30s sometimes. Or, or just belittling kids like they're uh, maybe even younger than that. Like they're, they'll be a little bit older. 
And they're trying to do something like try to be on the right path or do something like that. Or like, nah, that's weak. That's this, that's that. They're trying to put them down. And maybe that breaks down their self-confidence to the point where they end up doing these other things that get them in trouble and stuff because they wanted approval. It's labeling theory. So labeling theory is basically when you assign or denote someone a certain label and you constantly push that. So if you tell a child consistently, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. After a while, they're going to internalize those words and they're just going to be like, well, I guess I'm bad. Everyone tells me I'm bad. So I'm just going to essentially live up to this label that I've been given. So I think that's what happens in our communities, right? These kids see all these guys in their neighborhoods doing all this negative stuff. And after a while, it seeps into their mind that this is how I'm supposed to live my life yeah. as well. And they, bro, it's, and they, it's a cycle, bro. Yeah. It's, a, it's a cycle. It's a cycle Literally. of people that need to be re- rehabilitated. But because those guys are much older, there's no saving them, dog. You could just save the kids if we're being honest with ourselves. Yeah. I always say this all the time and people get upset at me when I say this. I'm like, there's a certain cutoff age where you just can't do anything for someone who lives in our community who's chosen to live a certain lifestyle. When you're over 25, in my opinion, and... You've been in the streets for so long. You have enemies. It's hard for us to rehabilitate you because even if you do somehow get away from all these things, you can never truly get away from them. People don't forget. You know what I mean? Like, that's why I saw something recently where someone wrote, like, I don't know why all these kids laugh when they see older guys talking about ops. Like, what do you guys think is going to happen when you guys get older? The guys that don't die or their cousins, their friends, you think those guys are going to forget the stuff that you guys did? Like, there's no cutoff age to the streets. And that's what I want kids who are listening to this podcast to understand. When you make a choice at 13, 14 years old to join a gang or get involved in these sort of things where people are dying on both sides, that stuff never goes away. Especially in the social media age where people can track all the stuff that you've said and done. You got to be very, very, very careful. And unfortunately, these are the people that these kids are following. For me, obviously, you guys know me because I grew up in jungle. I moved to jungle when I was in grade seven. But before that, I lived in uh, Driftwood, bro. And like... I had some great OGs. I had some terrible OGs. Like in every hood fam, there's a little crib. There's a crib that's like a corner store where they're selling like sodas or whatever. And me and my brothers were wild, bro. We used to go all over the place all the time. And these older heads, they would give me like 10 bucks. They'd be like, yo, go get me this, this, this. And they'll give me the change. You know what I'm saying? And I'd always do that all the time, like every night. And I'll just go hoop. And I remember one of the older heads, bro, this guy ended up being like, yo, you want to see some? Because these guys would have these mini motorbikes. And this guy literally showed me his, his strap, bro. Like, I literally held his strap, bro. I was like, what type of normal adult, bro, is going to show a child this, bro? Like, when I actually look at it and grow up, I'm like, yo, this guy was not good in the head, bro. The fact that you would even expose me to that, like, you're, this guy was a waste man, bro. Like, there were certain OGs that I had that really pushed me towards my dreams. But then there was other ones that just every time I seen them, bro, they were just like trying to tear, tear me down, tear me down. So for me, I'm just proud dog with teaching kids basketball and stuff. Like I didn't end up like those guys because there's no bigger waste suits than growing men in these hoods, bro. Just tearing down these kids and breaking them down. Like you're supposed to be an example. Even if you're doing what you have to do to survive, bro, you should not be seeing that. You know what I'm trying to say? There should be some morality in that. They've chosen a lifestyle that has no future. You know what I mean? There's no career, there's no career path for that future. So they want to bring as many people down with them as possible. Nah, there's dudes that are drug dealers that have morals, fam. They're not, they're doing what they have to do, but they're making sure that this youth is not having to go through what they go through or they're hiding it. They have some level of 
some level of hashod. For people who no, no, for people who don't know what hashod is, that means shame. shame in Somali. But they have some level of shame where they're not trying to expose this lifestyle to the youth. Then. We're not. You know we're not talking about those guys. They're not living in a moral place. Like Mahad was saying, bro, when you sell drugs, Mahad, it's not moral. When you live in the streets, there's nothing moral. There's no code. Dude, it's not like me at I work agree. where if something happens, I can go to HR. There's no HR, fam. If guys in the <laughs> hood, lace your or try to set you up. What if there you was an HR in the hood, bro? Yeah. Allah, what if there was an HR in the hood? Hilarious. I hate to make the joke and I don't want to like trivialize it, but like it's the only way sometimes I can speak. It's like, bro, it's there's no HR, fam. Innately, you're dealing with you're dealing in an environment that has absolutely no rules, no morals, no ethics. What what do these guys have to lose? They've already crossed the line. Facts. They've crossed so many lines they can't even count. But shout out to the OGs, bro, that are doing positive things in the hood. They pull those kids in, you know what I'm saying? To try to pull them away from all the BS. We saw how successful DMX was and, and, and all the incredible things he did in his career. If he didn't have that addiction to hold him down, only Allah knows what amazing. Super Saiyan. He would he would have been super Saiyan. So it's sad for me to see people like that have that pure soul tainted so young. And then you mm-hmm. see the ramifications of it. He never got to be fully who he was. We see the success in music, but he didn't fulfill his, his life as a, as a human being. There's more to than just the music side of it. So, yeah, and I think I, people get it twisted on that for sure. And one of my really good friends, bro, he, he looks up to him, my boy Mac. Shout out to Mac. So rest in so, peace, DMX. The next topic that we wanted to get into was, we know what's going on in the United States with the, the Dante Wright situation. So he's a young man who was recently gunned down in uh, Minnesota. He was leaving his vehicle and the police officer, she's been on the force for about 23 or 26 years. I forget her name, but uh, you guys can look it up. It's plastered all over the place. She basically couldn't discern between her gun and a taser. So she thought she was grabbing her taser, allegedly is what she claims, even though we've seen pictures of what a taser and a gun looks like and how you probably wouldn't be able to mistake that. She Mm -hmm. grabbed her taser and shot him multiple times and killed him right there on the spot. He didn't have any weapons. He was not armed. Well, I should not prepare. Yeah. So the conversation that we wanted to get into is, is there ever going to be a solution to this sort of stuff? Like, me personally, dude, I'm getting tired of hearing this stuff. And, and I feel like I'm almost getting desensitized to it. Like, it's to the point now where it doesn't always hit me or strike me the same. You know what I mean? Like, so I just wanted to get your thoughts on the situation. And then also the whole issue with just, like, how police deal with people in our communities. And, like, is there a solution? Is there a way to fix this? Like, what can we really do? Because this keeps happening. I think we also need to note the fact that this happened in the exact same state where the Derek Chauvin trial for the George Floyd killing is also taking place. Like as, no, as, dude, as, George, as George we speak. George Floyd's girlfriend. George Floyd's my, my bad to cut you off. Yeah. George Floyd's girlfriend literally was, was, this, was his teacher. teacher. Yo, you see that? That's Six crazy. That's crazy. That. I didn't know that. That's crazy. Um, so small. It's a small world. Oh man. my goodness. Yeah, one more thing that's gonna throw you guys off. You guys, you guys know the the military soldier who got pulled over and like maced or pepper sprayed by the police. The black guy. Mm-hmm. His uncle's Eric Gardner. Oh man. His uncle is Eric Gardner. Just remember that, guys. So we have two incidents now of people who are being harassed by police that were related to two people or connected to two people who were previously murdered by cops. So yeah. it goes to show you how sinister this sort of stuff is and how and how. And when people say, well, it'll never happen to me. Yes, it will. It happened to two people in one family and happened yeah. to someone who was familiar or close to yeah. George Floyd. And, and a lot of people <laughs> highlighting like even, oh, you know, that it, it's a mistake. It could easily happen. Nah, she was a 26-year veteran on the force. If you're starting to get to a point where, you know, your hands are shaking, you can't tell the difference between your, your firearm and your, and your taser, take your pension and dip. Just retire it's a privilege. right then and there. Facts, it's a privilege. It's a privilege, nope. bro. Before you take like, someone's life. Like, before we even talk systematically, let's talk particularly about this case. 
on the video, you see three officers on there, bro. The kid tries to resist a little bit. Like, he tries to go in the whip. And then, yo, this woman just literally pulls out. You see the strap in her hand. And she yells, taser, taser, pop. And she just shoots the kid one time. And that's a fatal, the fatal shot. Right after that, she looks at the, the officer in front of her and says, I shot him. Like, it almost kind of seemed like an act, if I'm being honest with you. Because, first of all, why would you yell, Taser, taser, like before you bust out, but before you bust it out, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I think I don't know, but maybe she has to announce it for a procedure, like that she's taken out a taser. So, and, and on top of that, bro, from what I understand, because these guys were explaining it, I think your pistol is in your dominant hand, right? And your taser is in your non-dominant hand. They're all on one side, Mod. They're all on one side because remember, is that what it is? With, actually, you you shoot with one hand, Mod. You don't shoot with your left and right, right? So either you're right-handed or left-handed. So they'll switch it on the side that's your dominant hand. And both of them are right next to each other. But there's been photos. The tasers are thicker. The handle it's much lighter. Is, it's much it's lighter. wider. No, no, no. The handle's wider, like the actual handle itself. The gun, yeah. I'm assuming, as well, is probably it might be lighter, but physically it's larger and it's yellow. It's literally yellow, right? It's and yellow. The holsters that you have, like I don't, I'm not sure if the front holster or the back holster, which one belongs to the gun and the taser, but they never change spots, right? So if, if your gun is at the front, it's always going to be at the front. You can't put it in the in the back holster because that holster is designated for your taser. And like you said, she's been on the force 26 years. So however you want to look at it, there's no excuse for her doing what she did. The saddest part is I think they're trying to charge it for second degree manslaughter. I believe that's the charge. Yeah, uh, I believe that's the charge. Yeah. What she did, bro, is just, it's just really, really sad. And it was unnecessary for that kid to die. Yeah. 20 years old. At all, bro. He had his whole life ahead of him. We've even seen in Chicago with that little kid who was like 12, 13 years old. You can see in the, in the screenshot before they actually shoot him, his hands are up. He has no weapon. You can clearly tell this is a child. And they decided to still shoot. So, and the reason that the thing that I don't like is, is uh, what a lot of people on the other side, their excuse would be like, man, you guys don't know how hard their job is. It's so stressful. It's so difficult. Like, dude. No, it's a higher job, standard. Higher yeah, it's a higher standard, bro. Like, if, if you if you're not capable of doing your job, don't be a police step officer. Down. That's step always, down. That's step always down. That's always kind of my thing. If it's too stressful for you and you can't handle it and it's too difficult, then leave. Stop working. And you can't you can't you're, maintain you're your composure people. and be calm in like, those stressful situations. I don't feel yeah. sad for them. You signed up for this. Nobody forced you and, and and put a gun in your hand and told you to become a police officer. You decided to make that choice, dude. In no other field or job can I mess up. And then, like, mess up really, really bad. You know what I mean? Yeah, and go yeah. to my boss or go to my coworkers and be like, hey, man, I was just stressed. Like, you know, we have a tough job. Like, just, you know, forget about it. Like, nah, man. Because they're going to charge her with manslaughter, that's very different than charging somebody with murder. Because mm. the sentence is significantly lower. You know what I yeah. mean? If she gets sentenced, I don't even think it's going to be it's going to be 10 years, she'll probably, right? She'll get off on good behavior. Like, we know she'll, she'll, she'll probably get sentenced to, like, seven years, but get off in, like, three or four but the thing is whether it was premeditated or there was any form of criminal intent whatever even if that wasn't the case you still murdered some you killed somebody bro yeah you know what i'm saying that yeah, should be like there's no coming back mistake there's no coming back for this kid bro yeah you no, should be exactly. getting 25 years to life and guys i thought of a, i thought of an actual solution on how to like solve this issue um because you're not going to stop these cops from doing this unfortunately right like we can we can maybe do better jobs of doing psych evaluations and maybe doing yearly evaluations or bi-yearly evaluations on these officers to kind of make sure they're up to the job. But this woman was working for 26 years and she still killed this young man. So, but the solution that needs to happen is we need to punish these officers for these crimes and hit their pockets. And what I mean by that is, is right now, uh, police officers have qualified immunity. If you guys don't know what qualified immunity is, 
in a lot of instances, you cannot criminally charge these officers in a civil suit or just any suit in general for their crimes in a lot of instances. They, that's why they get off or get lighter sentences is because their belief is because of their job and the nature of it. They need to be given a little, a few more liberties than the average citizen in order to do their job because of, I guess, the danger the or, or just the risk involved. Yeah. But the problem with that is what ends up happening is when these officers commit these sort of crimes, uh, even if they are found guilty, the money or the settlements that get paid out are paid out by taxpayers. They're paid out by our dollars that we pay taxes from, right? So what that does is there's no incentive for them as a collective no to stop there's doing no it. No, 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 there's no consequence for them as a collective to stop doing it, right? Because if my fellow officer commits this crime, and let's just say the slim chance he actually just does get uh, charged and convicted, it's not going to affect the rest of us, right? You know what I mean? Taxpayers are going to pay for it, and he gets off the force. Nothing happens to the rest of us. What and I'm, those what cases, and those cases are few and far between. Exactly. Right? So, what I'm, so for what every I'm one person that's, for every one bad cop that's convicted, bro, that's like fifty to hundred that just been that did their dirt. You know what I'm saying? Agreed. Yeah. So it's like it's that's, an anomaly. They're still hiding behind that. Uh, it's almost an anomaly. That, that uh, blue wall of silence. Yeah. So what I'm suggesting is then, rather than taking the money out of taxpayers' dollars. Let's take that money out of their pension. So now if one of your officers and in your station or your group and they mess up, it's coming out of all your pensions now. No, that's stupid. You know that doesn't I mean? make any sense. No, 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 that no, makes, that no makes sense. perfect sense. No, because why would sense. I be affected if, if you're we're yes. both cops? You you do something dumb like he's, that. He's saying he's saying so why is it he's saying us? why should taxpayers he's pay? Saying, why should he's, I pay? Taxpayers shouldn't pay. Taxpayers shouldn't pay. What he's saying what he's saying is hurt the institution. That's the only way to hurt the institution by large. Only way, dude. If a nurse messes up right now, they all have to apply for personal liability insurance. So if a nurse personally messes up, she's held personally liable. I'm just suggesting pension as one because you got to hit them directly. Maybe the other solution is we get police officers to do the same thing doctors and nurses do where they have to take out personal liability insurance. Therefore, whenever there's an incident like this where an officer messes up, you it comes out of your personal insurance. You have to pay for it. So these officers now... They're going to be a lot more careful because when they're making all their monthly insurance payments for their personal liability, they're going to remember, maybe I shouldn't do this. I don't want my rates to increase. I don't want to get fired. I don't want to have to go to court and potentially uh, give up a settlement to this person. Right. So that's why I'm suggesting these solutions. And, and I think the pension one is the best option because you got to attack the institution because that's what the problem is. These other officers, like you guys just mentioned, the blue wall. They're not holding their, their counterparts or their peers accountable for their actions. And the ones who do hold their peers accountable, they face reprisals. They, yes. they get cut out. They get forced into certain positions where they're no longer able to effectively do their job the way they used to. Just to comment on what Mohammed said, I think one of the solutions is, number one, when these type of incidents happen, stop, what's it called, putting these police officers above the law. It shouldn't yeah. have to be where... These officers are only getting convicted because there's these global uprisings, bro, and these political right. protests that happen right. for five or six days. That's the only time these officers are getting convicted properly. Right. When, listen, when the right. world right. has its eyes on it, that right. should not be happening, bro. No, no, no. But, but listen, Mom, listen, listen. That's why I'm suggesting these solutions. To bro. hit them because in the what, pockets. That's what he's saying. That's the only Financially. Because what you're suggesting, bro, it's going to take years for us to change legislation where we can get a police officer tried for 25 years. It's going to be very hard to get that passed. But things like this, this is this is reasonable. It makes sense. Uh, no, because... but that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying like try them like a city. I'm not saying yo, 25 no, years past. It, it's basically try them no, appropriately listen, to the crime. I'm trying to, but that's why I explained to you, dude. They have they have something called qualified immunity that prevents them from doing that, bro. 
Yeah. Right? And it's deeper, it's deeper than just putting them in jail because cool, you you jail, you this person loses their job. That should be the goal. But a lot of these families do need financial aid, particularly families in our communities. That's why you see the settlements happen. I'm saying it should stop going to us as regular citizens. We shouldn't have to pay out of our tax dollars I to deal with that. these people. Right? It should come out of y'all pension or it should come out of your per- or you guys should have to take on personal liability insurance. Like doctors. So now we're holding every like doctors, so hold everyone accountable. I feel like there should be some anonymity, your anonymity, anonymity, anonymity when it comes to basically good cops. Basically, it it should be where like what happens is, yo, when you step up against the blue code and you work with these guys as a cop, as Hassan said, you get you get outed, bro. You're losing your job quickly. There's got to be some form of anonymity when you're a good cop. You see somebody who's doing some stuff that they should not be doing, and you you should be able to speak to whoever your sergeant is, uh, to be able to out them, bro. But there's no HR. It's the same yeah, thing as these no HR. Like, even though they, even though they have HR, have but it's HR? not actually HR. Yeah, bro. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, their HR is under one administration, and if you go against yeah. the administration, it's it's uh it's a wrap for you. Even with these cases, when they when when they do like the investigations it's done by the police force as well it's the same body so there's like an implicit bias in there where the people that are like that's why you'll see like oh don't even brother don't even police have done a full the police have done a full investigation have found absolutely no wrongdoing even even here (laughs) even here with the the stuff that was happening over here the the his name was ejaz chowdhury he had a a mental health episode he was waving a knife or whatever they sent they sent feds to to his house and they just shot him up. They killed him right there. They asked him to look into the investigation for the wrongful. Where killing. was this? This was here in Mississauga. But um, they did an investigation, the SIU, which is another arm of, of the police. So it was just the police investigating the police. And they found no wrongdoing. Same for, I believe her name was Regis. She fell from uh, like a, oh, like a building. Yeah, exactly. And they were saying the police, there was like six. Her cousin's a rapper. I forget his yeah, name. They were saying, yeah, yeah, they were saying. Tui, Tui, I think his name is. Yeah, yeah, they were saying there were like officers in her unit. So even if she did jump off by herself, how could she have gotten to the balcony, so on and so forth? Well, the, with the second investigation, which they had a lawyer look into, they seen that there was something wrong with her neck, like almost that it gave signs of strangulation. But because the police is investigating the police, they let them off. So nobody's looking yeah. into that again. Yeah, bro, they willingly destroy evidence, bro, because they can. Canada hides things a little more. They, they act like, you know, they're better than the States. But obviously, that's why a lot of people were so afraid with this, uh, with this Ford police thing, because we know who it affects the most. Right. Uh, it's so funny when you see all these Canadians and being they see all this stuff that happens in America and they're like, that doesn't happen to us. There's no racism in Canada. Bro, Canada is one of the most racist places you will ever find. It's just way, 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 way more covert, bro. Like me, Alhamdulillah, I got the chance to play ball all over the country, fam. And the way Canada has done indigenous people, like what they teach us, fam, in our textbooks is so far from like the truth, bro. And like, and how they're actually living in these reserves, lack of resources. These people have such a rich history, such a rich culture that was completely ripped from them. You have residential schools. So that's why I hate when you see all of these suburb, mostly Adan white youths, being like, yo, there's no racism in Canada. How the fuck do you know if you never experienced it? Stop, stop, stop. How do you know if you have not experienced it, bro? You grew up in a Tobuco, fam. You grew up in Peterborough. You don't know, dog. You didn't live in the hood, bro. You didn't have this experience. Stop saying there's no racism in Canada because you don't know. If you haven't dealt with it, 
don't speak on it, dog. Like, that's the one thing that cheeses me the most with a lot of these Canadians, fam. Like, they're super beat. How, how no. are you going to speak on the oppression of another group if you have not lived in the same shoes as that particular group? Facts. And then, you know, Mahan, you know what's funny? I saw a recent video on one of those, like, Toronto meme pages. And they had, like, these officers. I guess they're in, like, some sort of garage. And there's, like, a, a video camera that was recording them while they were speaking. And they were literally saying, like, it's up for us. Like, the time for white men in this country is up. A lot of this, bro, is like they're seeing the world around them change. And that's why I laugh when a lot of them say, oh, we don't have privileges. They know they have privileges, bro. You know what I mean? They're just not going to acknowledge it publicly. This country obviously was built and founded around their principles. It was stolen land. They've done a lot of terrible things to different people. But all we can do, bro, is just move forward, continue to up and level ourselves up, continue to like... On, even on a smaller level, bro, if you guys live in your communities, man, protect your community, have a community watch, start buying up more neighborhoods. But the only way you combat this realistically, bro, is we need more economic power because what, what's happening is they know they can get away with these things because the people that they're targeting are typically impoverished, right? Like, Agreed. The economic empowerment, bro, is so important because here's the thing. When you live in the hood, fam, you don't own anything. So if you don't own anything... Why would you care about the betterment of your community, bro, if you don't own anything? When I get, mm. If I own stop, an act, stop. stop a lot. I said the stop, yeah, the stop a lot counter is wild. I'm sorry that I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm running up these numbers, baby. Nah, but it's baby. like. <laughs> baby. Yo, bro. It's, baby. Like, it's not. It's we're, like, we're not even halfway, fam. It's not even 15 days yet. I'm, oh I'm, I'm just saying, bro. If, I'm just saying this. If you don't own anything, why would you care? You know what I'm saying? Now, if I own the place that I live in and I see some nonsense happening on my street, that's going to not only devalue my property, but it's also going to affect the other people in my community. See how people in that community will protect theirs. They're not having it, bro, because they own something. The thing that they need to do in these places, honestly, bro, is continue to build that wealth. But this is another thing they need to do. Then this is what I love LeBron is doing. Control and educate your own kids yourself. Don't let these other people educate your children. So yes. That's what I love what LeBron and Westbrook are doing by opening up these schools where they can control who the teachers are, the Jaylen curriculum. Jalen Rose, too. Jalen Rose, the mentality, the mindset. Because Malcolm X said this, bro. He said, you should never let your oppressor teach your child. And we saw this here in, in, in North America, in Canada. In residential the res schools, bro. Residential they used schools. education Re as a weapon. Residential schools. It was, it was weaponized. Africville, Thank Nova you. Scotia, all that. Thank you. So that's why I feel like the education component is so important because the books, the textbooks, the authors, these are not people from our communities that have our interests at heart. When they were writing these books, they weren't thinking of Black people in mind, right? So you got to keep that in mind also. I think it, it's, it's a full-fledged thing that needs to occur. For me, it's all about a collective front. One of the things that I learned, and I learned this from a black woman, bro, I used to always think it's every man for themselves. I was the most competitive person you can ever imagine. And wallahi, the best thing I could have ever learned from this woman was collaboration is everything, bro. You can go fast by yourself, but you can go so much further together. And that literally changed my life. That changed my business. That changed so many things for me, dog, to understand. And I could look at you like my brother. Like, that's the game changer for the black community. And honestly, I think a lot of the black community, and in the States particularly, is already kind of woke to that. And now they're collaborating with each other. But the sad part is all of these dramatic things have to happen in the world for that unity to happen. Like you said, it's a mentality thing, right? And it is a mentality, yeah. Being open to collaboration is, is something people have to warm up to.
I'm glad you mentioned that because we you were on that call yesterday during or that room in the clubhouse that we had where we were talking to these people about Pan-Africanism and kind of like the benefits of it. And what I realized during that conversation is the best approach isn't to sell it to African-Americans as an opportunity for just solely financial gain. They're looking for a connection to Africa. And I get it now. It makes more sense to me because we just look at economically like, yo, we need to build our power. And, and realistically, that's how you compete in this world globally. That's how all nations compete. But uh-huh. They're right. There needs to be a social connection that occurs within our communities uh, abroad and in America, continental Africa, wherever you exist. In the diaspora, where people yeah. In the diaspora in general, where people can create like a sense of community. So, for example, like I'm Sudanese and, and Mahad and, and, and Hassan are Somali, but we can get along because we have a common things that we can we can connect one, one another with. Also helps that we're both East African and Muslim, so it's a little different, right? So I can understand mm-hmm. that too. But mm-hmm. the point that I'm making is nonetheless... Us, because we're homies in the future, if I run a business back home or I do something back home and I want to connect with someone in Somalia, I'm going to reach out to these guys because these are my homies, these are my brethrens, and we're all going to benefit, right? But the only way that happens is people meeting each other. Like, these guys wouldn't know of me if we didn't live in if we didn't live in our communities together. You get what I'm saying? So that's where it starts, and that's where I think I learned that from that conversation. And that's why I think we need to bridge that gap first. And what I was saying is, like, it's a mentality thing. Once you can bridge that gap and connect people on a common ground, you can build because there's no reason why black people should be on the lower end of the spectrum everywhere you go. You know what I mean, Hassan? Like everywhere you go on average, there's a lower end of the spectrum. Even in continental Africa, we have unlimited resources, but it's one of the poorest continents in the world, which doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? And the reason for that is because the people on the ground, they don't have an opportunity. They don't have a means to connect with one another. And that's where we have to start with our generation, I think. Yeah, we've grown up a certain way, right, in the West. We've, we've seen a certain lifestyle. We know what type of thinking is harmful and what not to pass down to the younger generation coming up and what could potentially foster a little bit more connection between our, our, our different communities and foster this collaboration mentality amongst ourselves and and see that we can view each other on a common ground. In order for us to build these uh, connections, you've got to break down some of these boundaries and you've got to get rid of some of the ignorance that some of our people carry because there's so many amazing opportunities that I think are available. Like we see Akon building those cities. We had a previous episode about it. You guys should check it out. Kanye apparently wants to get involved, right? You know what I mean? And and I agree with that. I'm like, yo, if we're going to build these nations and build up the continent, we should make sure the people that are investing it have vested in interest in what we're doing as people. I really just hope, dog, that like all these young people coming up, they can just cut ties with the whole idea of racism because it's it's so laughable to think that you're superior to another human being based on your skin color i hope that genuinely changes because we obviously we're talking about collaboration and, and being able to collaborate like i'm fortunate enough to work with companies now that are so incredibly diverse it's such a beautiful thing and and you actually get to see and i even got to learn a statistic while i that a lot of these companies that are actually more diverse they're actually much more um, productive for businesses. Like they actually help out the business dramatically because you're getting so many different perspectives that it's just a win-win, you know? So racism is such a an unnecessary thing going forward. And, and I, I hope the future is bright. I agree with you. I think we definitely need to, it needs to be a mental and cultural shift where we stop looking at each other as like combatants and enemies. Uh, even within our own countries, man. Like I know we're thinking large as far as like cross-continental, even within our own countries, bro. There's other countries in Africa that are still battling and fighting and, and, and doing terrible things to each other. So we definitely got to evolve and, and move forward. You know what I mean? And a lot of that starts with us. We understand what the seeds of all this is, and it's going to be generations worth of work. I don't think we'll see it 
entirely in our lifetimes, but the work has to start somewhere. Inshallah, yeah, inshallah, hopefully. We want to thank you guys so much for tuning in this week to Working Vacation Podcast. I go by the name of Marvin Light. I go by Hassan Shazam. My name is Mo. Every single one of you guys that likes, subscribes, listens to our podcast every single week, we sincerely appreciate you guys. If you guys are enjoying the content that we create, please subscribe now. We got a lot more amazing content on the way. Peace!